Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here at Strange Loop in St. Louis, and I am with Allison Parrish. Allison is a teacher with the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU, and she is actually speaking later on today on experimental creative writing with the vectorized word. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Okay, so I am I'm a poet. That's sort of what I like to call myself <laughs> primarily. But my educational background originally as an undergraduate was in linguistics, and I've been a computer programmer for a really long time. Most of the poetry that I write has to do or is produced with procedures. So I write computer programs that produce poetry. And I've been doing that for, for a really long time. Mostly I've done like Twitter bots and stuff like that. Okay. And sort of my, my poetic research right now is about like how do we how do we find new ways of composition? Like what are new, new means of like putting text down onto the page? Because when we generally think of poetry, we think of like, you know, a, a really artistic person or whatever who gets super inspired by nature or something. And it's like looking out the kitchen window and sees the glint of dew off of the flower of a petal and then like <laughs> writes, writes a poem based on that inspiration. Oh, petal dew, how you... Right, 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 exactly. I'm interested in thinking about how can we expand the possible languages and methods that poets can use to write. And how does that like, you know, what are the other poetic effects that can be made with text other than just like the sort of the, the conventional poetic or the conventional narrative way that the text works. Hmm. So procedure is a great way to address that is the computer, you know, the computer can choose something at random. The computer can, have a system of rules for putting stuff together. And those rules don't necessarily conform with our conventional ideas about how text goes together. Okay. So I primarily have been thinking about artificial intelligence and machine learning as they've been in my practice for the past couple of years as a way to just do more of that work of trying to create tools for, for poets and programmers to be expressive with language in ways that they haven't been able to be before. Okay. There's been a lot of work recently with folks basically training these LSTM neural nets with you know tons of text and then having them produce. I, I, I got to imagine someone's done poetry, but movie scripts and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. all kinds of stuff. Do you do any of that as well? Or it sounds um, like you're looking for more structure in the type of things that... that I don't know if it's more structure or less structure or different structure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I, I keep up with that research, and there's, I should have looked this up. There's the Turing tests and the creative arts, I think it's called, mm. something like that. I haven't seen that, but I imagine it's, when you look at this, do you think it was written by a human? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay. And they have this prize, and it, it, the, when they first started out, it was just like a couple of different genres. They've added different stuff, but now they have, huh. they've had a prize for like the best sonnet. And by best, what they mean is the one that can like, trick a person into thinking that it was written by a person. Okay. And the prize is $10,000. And that okay. basically means that like, there's always been a literature on computational poetry generation, but for like the past couple of years, it's all just been like 
sonnet generator, sonnet generator, sonnet generator, sonnet generator, sonnet generator. Okay. All with like slightly different methodologies, some of which are using like deep learning, some of which aren't. Okay. And I think that's super interesting research to keep up with, but like those researchers are framing their the problem that they're solving in terms of verisimilitude. Like they're trying to make poems that resemble poems that are written by a person mm -hmm. in a conventional, typical manner. Right. And then like in actually like, you know, in the paper in order to evaluate the work, they'll like, you know, do like a survey or something and ask people to judge whether or not it was conventionally created or not or, or okay. how would they do it. Which for me is like, that's super uninteresting. It's like, <laughs> I mean, as a poet, as, as, as like a researcher, it's like, well, of course that's, that's cool. That's interesting. Right. But as a poet, it's like we already have a pretty efficient machine for writing sonnets, and that's a person. Like, if you <laughs> find a person and you give them $10,000 and you say, will you write a sonnet, you're probably going to get a pretty good sonnet. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't think anybody's been paid $10,000 to write a sonnet in the past, you know, 100 years or whatever. So for me, I'm more interested in, with that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm more interested in using machine learning for, for making opening new avenues for being expressive in unexpected ways. I guess the answer is like, I'm, I'm like trying to pick and choose from that research, the, the stuff that can be helpful to me. And the stuff that's been really helpful to me over the past couple of years is just like this idea of a word vector and how it opens up this ability to compose text differently because instead of working with discrete units, you're working with like just this kind of like blob that can be like stretched and molded and, and stuff like that. And I think that's like really useful raw material for a poet. Interesting. So I imagine your talk was about how you can stretch and mold the words with this with this blob. Right. So maybe walk us through kind of how you how you presented those ideas. What were you trying to leave folks with? The thing that I'm trying to, to leave to leave people with is more just an idea of here's what computers can do with language that might not occur to people individually. I don't think that like the particular research that I'm doing is like the answer to computer generated poetry. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that I've been doing recently is so if you take like these pre-trained word vectors from an algorithm like Word2Vec or the the glove vectors from Stanford, you basically just get like, you know, four gigabytes of of vectors that associate a word or a, a text file that associates a word with, with the vector of numbers. And once you have that vector of numbers, you can arrange them in sort of like a matrix so that every word in a text corresponds to a vector. At that point, it's weirdly just like audio or image data. Like image data only has like four dimensions, let's say like the gray, red, green, blue, and alpha channel. Audio data usually just has the one dimension, like the the amplitude at that particular sample point, but text, even though even though that that data is like three hundred dimensional or whatever, from like a mathematical standpoint, it's it's the same. So there's like no reason you can basically just like the same function that you would use in like what's the name of the stupid Python library that has all of the Scikit-Learn. Yes, I, could, I use this every day. I don't know why it like slips <laughs> off my tongue. Any, any function in scikit-learn or numpy or whatever that you could like put an image file into and yeah. then get another image out, you right. can do that with a word vector as well. Right, right. So this is like, this is an experiment that I did while I was doing a residency last summer, which was basically just like, what does it look like when you blend two texts together? If you just have like, here's, here's text one, which is a matrix of word vectors, here's text two with a matrix of word vectors. 
What if you just like crossfade between them? Okay. What do you huh. get from that? And then you can do things like blur the text, like apply like an algorithm to just like average the surrounding pixels the same right. way that you would do with a with an image or oh wow. Or resample it. Like you can actually like take a text and then just say, instead of being fifty word vectors long, this will be five word vectors right. long. What you get right. And that's actually like one of the ways of doing text summarization is just like average all of the vectors in a sentence and that average vector is like the thing that you use to represent the meaning of the sentence huh. there's like other more sophisticated ways to do that but that's okay. like surprisingly performs well on all of these tasks oh wow yeah and then so th that's the kind of like thoughts that i've been bringing to this recently in terms of the operations that you can perform on on the vectors and the idea of that the idea behind that is just that now you can, with word vectors as the medium for text, suddenly you can think of composing a text not consisting of like typing letters on a keyboard or selecting like words from autocomplete, but instead you have this like very physical, analog, continuous way of saying like, you know, I can, I can turn a knob, like I could turn like a physical knob to make this text longer or shorter or to add in these semantics from this other text. And so forth. Interesting. And now I'm taking that very literally, well, not a literal knob, but I'm, I'm thinking of, it'd be kind of cool to have some kind of GUI representation of all of these, these vectors and use that in a way to generate poetry or other written works. Like, are, are we there yet? Is that something like that? Uh, I've actually, like, I've been, I've been performing poetry with an interface like that, with an actual, like, MIDI controller with actual oh, wow. ones. And one of the things that, that is in the talk is I'm working on sort of like a, a prototype for an interactive environment that's sort of like, do you know, like, like processing the interactive programming framework? I, I've heard it. Okay. I've heard the phrase. It's but basically I don't know. like it opens up a canvas object in the browser and then gives you a function that runs 30 times a second or whatever. And then inside of that function, you can call like, a function to draw an ellipse or whatever, and you can have it follow the mouse and stuff like that. So I am working on a prototype interface that's sort of like that, except for word vectors. So instead of like a pixel buffer, the main thing that you're operating on in real time is a, is a buffer of word vectors. Huh. And then on every frame, it's like showing you the word vector in the database closest to whatever that value happens to be. So, I mean, the thing about it is that like, I think a lot of, the problems that I'm trying to solve are, are poetic problems. Right. And I think that a lot of like artificial intelligence researchers, you know, because this is what they're interested in or are interested in solving these problems of like, you know, let's think about how to formalize what a poem is so that we can yeah. generate better poems. Right. Cause that's sort of like the, the teleology of artificial intelligence research is to like duplicate labor, but I'm more interested in. So the, like, the stuff that my tool makes is not stuff that makes sense in the conventional way. It's less, it's more Gertrude Stein than a mainstream contemporary poet. I can't think of a mainstream contemporary poet that I want to like make fun of for making <laughs> poetry that makes too much sense. So yeah, that's, that's sort of my is goal. It a, is it like a linearity? It's like less linear than what you would typically expect or is that too simple a characterization? What do you mean by linear? I guess I'm imagining the poems that the tool, that the the thing that you're, the poems that you're creating mm -hmm. being more, I guess I'm imagining just like random words popping out. 
Yeah. Is it kind of like that? Or <laughs> it's kind of it... like that. Okay. Yeah, it comes out looking like random words. But yet there's some fundamental element of it that still, at least to you, says this is poetry. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting to me is, the thing that, that has been interesting to me as I've been presenting this work, I mean, I, I, I present this work a lot to, to people in, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence research, but then I also just like perform it at regular poetry readings. And the thing that's actually been interesting and encouraging to me is that like these metaphors actually make sense to people. Like that idea of blending between two texts, like averaging two words and finding the word in the middle and then making an entire text out of those words that are blended between the two. As long as you can show like some deltas, as long as you can say like, here's where it started and here's where it's ending up, people will appreciate what's happening at each of these of those intermediary steps. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a, a rule about poetry in general. The more that people understand the rules that condition the text, the more that they understand like the aesthetics of the mechanisms, the more they actually understand the text itself. Okay. So that's what I'm the the idea is that like if you just looked at it in isolation, you might think, oh, this is nonsense. But once you understand the the procedure behind it, once you understand what's going into it, then suddenly it becomes this like massive new ability, this massive new way of thinking about language and text. That question of interpretability is like super, super important to me. Interpretability in, in the sense you just described, right, right. understanding the context for a particular poem and mm. the receiver's ability to interpret its significance. Right. So we have like, if you think about in, in the visual arts and with music, there are all kinds of different ways of interpreting those artifacts. Sure. Right? Like, since the invention of photography, almost all visual art has turned away from depiction. Like, people still paint things, but since, you know, as soon as photography was invented, you had Impressionism. And interpreting an Impressionist painting is very different from interpreting a painting that, like, actually depicts something. Interpreting, like, a Jackson Pollock painting or a Mark Rothko painting or something like that is also very different. So there's this like whole new language for interpreting art that doesn't have to do with that conventional way of interpreting it. And the same thing with, with music. Like we have music with music. It's even more, it's even more striking because music is almost never, you know, intended to convey a thought, right? Sometimes it is. And we have languages of symbolism for doing that. I mean, like, like when Bach was writing a chorale or whatever, he wasn't like, that wasn't meaning to say, like, you know, remember to buy eggs at the grocery store or whatever, right? Like, okay. it, was, it was trying to, it was trying to create a particular aesthetic effect. Okay. And then there's some music, like, you know, music with lyrics or whatever, or, or like, music with leitmotif from the Romantic era. Like, those do have, like, specific symbolism and they can be interpreted. But in general with music, like, it's not... You don't listen to a song hoping to like immediately retrieve like a propositional sentence that the person said, right? The song isn't some encoded phrase. Right, right, exactly. It might include phrases, but it's not, it is not itself a way of linguistic expression. Right. Or I should say like a way to communicate a single idea. And lots of poets have been working with that same concept for a really long time. Like that's been part of like the the modernist tradition since 
Dada and maybe even earlier. But I think a lot of contemporary poets who are working in this area are sort of stuck on the idea that either it has to make total sense in a conventional way, or it has to be completely nonsensical. Like it's either just nonsense, unreadable nonsense, or it's this thing that is conventional and typical right. in the way that it means. And I'm, I'm trying to investigate that little middle area. Yeah. And that's where machine learning is, is so useful because like that's sort of, for me, at least aesthetically, that's the same place that machine learning inhabits. It's like, well, it's not, it's not a person in society with all of that context. It's sort of like trying to imitate and learn some of those same patterns from data. And when machine learning is most interesting to me is when it's, when it's like slightly broken, when it gives you stuff that's unexpected. <laughs> so you've got this apparatus that allows you to manipulate word vectors mm -hmm. and produce poetry. But there's also this other step that is producing the word vectors, the vectorization from a corpus that, yeah. you know, hugely influences the result. Do you incorporate that step in as well? Or do you take that as, you know, a given for a, you know, a piece or a body of work? With the semantic stuff, I've been taking it as a given because I don't, you know, want to spend the money on the easy two machines to, <laughs> to like do like a big word to vac thing on, on gigabytes and gigabytes. I think there's something to be said about using that materiality. A lot has been written about, about the bias that is in word vectors and how like, you know, like the analogies it'll show like right. man is to programmer as woman is to housewife or whatever. I kind of like how that materiality is present in, in the stuff that comes out of this. Part of the reason of, of making stuff, of making poetry is to expose those, to expose and help people understand the ways that language is is biased. So I don't see that as being like entirely incompatible with okay. what I'm trying to do. And so do you use a specific pre-trained Wordtovec model? I've been using the the glove vectors recently. Glove vectors. So there's uh and those are from Stanford and they're not yeah, they're it's a different algorithm from Wordtovec, but it basically ends up doing the same okay. thing. But it's not just the algorithm, it's a, it's a vector system that's yeah. pre-trained for yeah, you. Yeah, you just download the text file and it's like Word and then 300 numbers. Just got it, got it. And there's a wonderful library for Python called Spacey for doing natural language processing stuff. Okay. And it comes with those vectors by default, or at least it did in the most recent version. Okay. So those are like super easy to use. Oh, nice. The other thing I've been working on recently, and this is the thing that I'm giving a talk on next week, experimental AI in games is phonetic similarity vectors. Hmm. So the same way that word vectors give you like two words with similar meanings will have similar vectors. Right. The thing that I've been working on for like the past year, and I'm an arts professor, so I don't have a lot of resources to work on this. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure a professor in an actual like computer science department would have been able to get a grad student to do this and in a week. But for me, it was, a, it was a new adventure, was trying to come up with a system of vectors where two words with similar pronunciations will have similar vectors. Mm. So that like the word back and pack would have vectors that are similar right. to each other. The idea being that then you could come up with vector representations of sentences or lines of poetry and then determine how similar they are in sound and then do other interesting stuff with that. The same way that you can like 
do analogies with word vectors, you'd be able to do analogies with the way that words sound. Huh. Interesting. It also makes me think of, you know, so much of conventional poetry is around rhyming, rhyming right. words, and yeah. you could do something similar with rhyming vectors or something. Yeah, yeah, rhyming is, rhyming is, is difficult. <laughs> because it's like really easy to, it's really easy to like mechanically identify rhymes in a text. If you can, if you have a phonetic transcription of the text, then like you can just look at like particular phonemes in particular places and then you know whether or not it rhymes. Finding slant rhymes is harder because then you have to have some criterion that tells you how similar are these two sounds and if they're similar enough that it counts as a slant rhyme. What's an example of a slant rhyme? So a slant rhyme would be like it would be like in a song where somebody tries to rhyme like hit with pick or something like that, where the sound at the end doesn't quite match. Okay. And like almost all contemporary lyrics use slant rhymes all the time. Okay. I wish I had a better example off the top of my head. <laughs> um, but the, the point is that like it doesn't have to be precise for it to count as a rhyme. Okay. And so a lot of the, a lot of the poetry papers, a lot of the poetry generation papers that you read now we're like sort of trying to find rule-based ways to solve that problem. Like even in a paper that's otherwise all about deep learning, we'll have this like little section that's like, well, and then we use this sequence of if-else statements <laughs> to determine whether or not these are slant rhymes. Okay. One of the points of doing the phonetic similarity vectors would be able to like just say like, okay, do your surface syntactic and semantic generation of the text and then compare the phonetic similarity. And you could even like compare the phonetic similarity across like moving windows inside of the text and you'd be able to like detect where two lines are most similar in the way that they sound. So that you'd be able to have like sort of like a useful tool for doing that kind of slant rhyme detection. Okay. But then also <laughs> poetry uses sound in ways that isn't just rhymes, right? Like, right. especially in like contemporary hip hop, like there's just like, all, an entire line will consist of sounds that are similar in some way. And there's like this really complicated interplay between, between lines where sounds are not quite the same, but they're similar. And they produce these, from like an articulatory standpoint, the way that your mouth moves, they have this particular feeling. And then like, you know, classical poets or even like romantic poets or whatever, you'll see those patches of things like alliteration and assonance and stuff like that. All of which you can study on like a rule-based basis. But one of the things that I wanted to be able to do with these phonetic similarity vectors is allow you to just write an equation, just like look at a text and then you have a number that represents its what it sounds like. And then you can just, you know, use regular Euclidean or cosine distance to or cosine similarity to compare those two. And so whereas the previous work that you were describing is more about generation, this is more about analysis? No, it's, it's still more about generation. Okay. Because again, I'm, I, I'm trying to solve poetic problems. <laughs> I'm not, not like linguistic or research problems. Okay. That was just like this kind of happy result of making these vectors. Okay. I, was, I made the vectors because I was, I was working on a book of poetry for, for Counterpath. And I, what I wanted to be able to do is just take the entire corpus of poetry in Project Gutenberg, and I basically do a random walk through the sounds of it. So arrange every line of poetry in this database of public domain text, 
and then just be able to go from one line to the next based on how similar they sounded to each other. That was the original like poetic idea because I love I love like poetic flow. I love like that that effect that you have in a poem where it just feels like all of the sounds are coming right. together. And if you can get that from this huge repository of right. poems, that'd be pretty cool. Right. So that was like my main impetus. But then I was like, I should write a paper about this. Papers usually have a section on whether or not it meets some criterion of success. <laughs> so I should try to make that determination. And so then there's like this whole literature about phonetic similarity. And I was able to like pull a couple of test data sets out of there and prove that like actually the algorithm that I was working on, you know, was performed pretty well on these tests. Oh, wow. And so from that, like these ideas of how you might be able to apply it in these other, in these other contexts just sort of fell out naturally. And I don't think, you know, because I'm an, I'm an artist and I only have an undergraduate degree in linguistics, I don't think that the solution that I came up with is like the ultimate best solution, but it definitely helped me solve my problem. Awesome. That's what matters. Very cool. Anything else you covered in your talk that you'd like to share? Mm, no. Or no. we'll cover. I keep saying cover it, but you're, you're well, speaking later probably on. by the time that people hear this, it will have happened. True um, indeed. True indeed. No, I think that's basically it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for sharing all this with us. It was really, I don't get to talk about poetry very often. People don't. And it makes me realize how little I know about it. So I need to figure out how to fix that. Nobody knows anything about poetry. Even poets don't know anything about poetry. <laughs> is that part of the essence of the thing? I think it. I think it partially is. I found recently that I like to read about poetry more than I like poetry itself. So <laughs> maybe that's a good starting point. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Allison. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Allison or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 72. To follow along with our Strange Loop 2017 series, visit twimlai.com slash stloop. Of course, you can send along your feedback or questions via Twitter to at twimlai or at Sam Charrington or leave a comment right on the show notes page. Thanks again to Nexosis for their sponsorship of the show. Check out twimlai.com slash talk slash 69 to hear my interview with the company founders and visit nexosis.com slash twimmel for more information and to try their API for free. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.